Billy Graham was once asked about his spiritual disciplines, especially about reading scripture. And the question was this, when you miss a day or two, how do you get back into the routine of reading scripture? And it was reported that when he was asked, Graham cocked his head a little bit and squinted and said, I don't think I've ever done that. The reporter said, you mean you never miss reading scripture, not even a day? No, said Billy Graham. It's nourishment for my spiritual life, and I don't want to miss a meal. Now, I'm not about to call Billy Graham a liar, and I don't think you would either. And so the first question we have is, how in the world is that possible, right? For Billy Graham, disciplines like prayer and scripture weren't spiritual add-ons. They weren't optional. They, they were integral to his spiritual condition. They were vital to his spiritual health. They had become so ingrained in his practice that they came as naturally to him as breathing. And the question is, how does a person get the self-control like that? How do we get that? In our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a list made up of outcomes that happen when the Holy Spirit begins to direct the path in our life. And we're led into all kinds of outcomes that not only make life wonderful, but they make life, life work the best. Things like love and joy, peace and patience. And Paul calls all of these outcomes the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what God wants for you God wants you and me to have more of all of these qualities, more love, more patience, more peace. And the irony is that these things are what we're all after anyway. We want more of all of these things in our life. So we've also committed each week to memorize this famous list, and by now we should have it. After eight weeks, there's no safety nets, okay? Let's say it together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And don't forget about the reference. That's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So on this last week together, we come to this last item on the list, self Control. It is way down the list. Now, just a reminder that the fruit that we're talking about, the way Paul writes it, he writes it that it is a singular fruit. It's one fruit. And the one fruit is holiness, which comes to us from God's very nature when the Spirit comes into our lives. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit, because he is love. He is joy. He is peace. He's all of those things. But holiness describes above all else what it means to be a Christian. And all of these traits that he lists, love, joy, peace, patience, are just simply aspects of holiness. And they all work together and stimulate each other. They only exist together. So we've been taking one each week, one aspect, and we've been looking at it and we've been defining it. We've been asking what is the opposite of this aspect of the fruit? Is there a counterfeit? Is there something that maybe looks like the fruit but isn't? And then finally, how can we cultivate this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts so that it, this aspect of holiness will grow in our lives? And so today we come to the very last one on the list, but it is by no means last on the list. Uh, it may hold the key, we might find, to all 
of the others. And so some on the list that we've talked about, um, we think, no problem. I mean, I think I'm kind, right? We, we get to kindness. Nobody thinks they're unkind. But when we get down to self-control, this one, ah, oh, I think we would all admit without much argument that we have a problem with this one. Few of us in the room are like Billy Graham when it comes to scripture or prayer, and we have a ways to go with self control. I want you to just go back through this last week of your life. I want you to think through your emotions that you had. Was there one this last week that got the best of you, that you lost control of? Think about the words that came out of your mouth this last week. Did some escape into the air that maybe you regret? What about your actions? Well, I told myself I was going to lay off sugar, but then I found a two-for-one Dairy Queen Blizzard coupon. So, uh, I mean, next week, right? What in the world is self-control? When the Bible talks about self-control, what does it mean? In the Old King James, the word, when we come to this word that is probably in your version, labeled self-control, the King James Version, when you come to it in that version, it, the word is temperance. It's different. That's a word, temperance, that's almost lost to us. Um, if you're watching a Ken Burns film or maybe doing a research paper on the 1920s and prohibition, then you might find that word, temperance. Otherwise, it's kind of buried beneath all the other words that we've discarded in the English language in favor of O-N-G and L-O-L. Okay? We don't know what it is. So, to help you with temperance, I need you to think of the word in its shorter form, temper. Oh, that's a word we're familiar with. Why? Because we've lost that, haven't we? Yes, some of us just this morning. And losing your temper means you've lost control. The Greek word that's behind temperance or self-control is egratia. And it's made of, of two words, krat, which means power and strength and dominion and lordship. And then ego is the second word, which means self. And so egratia means to have power or lordship over yourself. That's what temperance means. And that's what self-control is. And lots of craziness and pain and destruction happens when we lose power over ourselves. Now, I want to wait to define self-control until a little later. And first today, I want to ask this. How do most people in your life, in my life, go about this self-control thing? In the actions of most and the way we instinctively try to tackle self-control, we will find the fake to self-control. And so we're going to cover the counterfeit of the fruit first, the fake to watch out for, something that looks like self-control, but really isn't. And here's the surprising answer. Willpower alone. That's the fake. That's the imitation. Willpower alone. It's the old Nike commercial, if you remember it. The old Nike commercial said, just do it. And there was an athlete there, and they were just doing whatever it took to do their thing on the field or the track or whatever. And that kind of mentality is when we say, I'm going to get this done. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to change. I'm just going to grit my teeth and beat myself into order. I'm going to quit the sugar. I am going to cut up the credit cards. I am going to chisel my abs. I'm going to read scripture every day. I will do it. Uh, and so through willpower alone, 
we tackle change. And if we succeed, then to everyone else around us, the routine of our lives look like looks like we're put together. But for the rarest of people, success this way is actually possible. And these are the people that we go up to and we say, how in the world did you do that? And they say, well, uh, I mean, I just, I just decided and I kind of did it. That's willpower. Now, there are a few problems with willpower. And if you've ever tried to change anything in your life, maybe you are aware already of these. Number one, willpower alone never harnesses the real power. Willpower by itself is like a boat without a sail. When you have a boat without a sail, the only option is to to actually get somewhere is to row, right? Maybe we're going across the ocean. And so the question is, without a sail, how long can you row? And the answer is only the strongest among us can do that for very long, let alone getting all the way across an ocean. Uh, it's doubtful uh, that it can be done. And if so, it's only a few freaks among us that can get that done to cross an ocean. What a boat needs is a sail full of wind. Willpower alone won't give you that. Why? Here's the second thing that's wrong with willpower. Because willpower is a finite resource. You only have so much willpower and it gets weaker as you go along. It's like your cell phone battery. Um, it starts really uh, good in the morning, and then by by night, it's almost completely gone. It's diminished. And multiple factors in your day will drain your willpower. Maybe you had a lot of decision-making that had to happen uh, during the day, and so your willpower by the, by the nighttime is next to nothing. Maybe you had a lot of temptation come your way that day. Maybe there was a lot of conflict in your life that day. Maybe it's just a bad day, and a storm came through, and a limb fell on your car. Um, for whatever reason, willpower reserves get low. And this depletion of willpower causes us to lose our cognitive ability to make good decisions as the day goes on. And this explains why you do so well in the morning with a diet, but by 8 o'clock at night, you are scrambling for Twinkies, okay? We might plan out activity in the morning when willpower is high, but then when evening comes, we're much less motivated to do whatever it is we planned. We think, oh, I'm going to run. I'm going to run this evening. Uh, after I get off work, I'm going to go, and I'm going to run. And then we get off work, and guess what? Ah, uh, nah, I'll run tomorrow. Listen. Biblical self-control is something that every one of us is called to. But it seems like willpower only works effectively for a very few. There has to be a way that we can all cultivate this into our lives. And that's why just do it has to be the counterfeit. Willpower alone is not responsible, uh, is not possible for everybody. But as we'll see, self-control is not about willpower alone. Willpower alone, the need to be in control of my life, is the surprising counterfeit to true self-control. Control And it can work for some for a while, and it may look like self-control from the outside, but it won't last because it's without a foundation, and it's finite, and it only works for a few. Now, on the other hand, what does real self-control look like? I want you to think of somebody who truly has self-control, and I, I propose this, and I think you'll agree that somebody with true self-control is somebody with courage, 
here's a thought for you to disagree or agree with. Uh, the greatest deeds of courage are deeds of self-control. I'll say it again. The greatest deeds of courage are deeds of self-control. I want you to think in your mind back to 9-11. And I want you to think about those first responders who went into the tower rubble on that day to save people. Now, those are actions that if you weren't around for 9-11, you've seen pictures, and whether you're around or not, those are actions that everyone applauds, right? Sacrificing for others. But they're at the same time tremendous actions of self-control. They're actions of heroes, and a hero is most often found in someone who is able to forget themselves. Courage is this heroic ability to forget about Uh, my fears or my well-being or my future or my outcome and instead think of somebody else's. I want you to put yourself in those shoes of those first responders on 9-11 and I want you to think about whether any of them said something like this, man, I got to get my life straightened out. I got to work on me. I got to get in shape. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into that pile of collapsing building rubble and I'm going to rescue people because I think that's something that'll help me. That's my goal for myself so I can feel better and get in shape and bring some self-control into my life. Did they say that? No, not a chance. They weren't thinking about their abs. In fact, they weren't thinking about themselves at all. And that's the point. They were thinking of something else. They were thinking of saving lives and saving family and friends that they knew might be trapped in there. They were thinking of their buddies next to them that were in the same danger. And what we see in heroic action is that self-control, just like humility last week, comes as a byproduct of chasing after something else. Deeds we applaud as heroic are the result of people taking action, not for the action itself, not out of willpower alone, but because some bigger, compelling reason demands that the action be taken. There are people in there to save in that pile of rubble, and that reason is big enough to get me to do whatever I have to do to save them. And in that picture of a hero, we find the definition of self-control. Self-control is this, the ability to put the important thing over the urgent thing. The ability to put the important thing over the urgent thing. That's the common ingredient to the things we hail as heroic. I want you to think back over this last week to the times you lost your temper, you lost control. Think very deeply about that and see if the reason you lost self-control wasn't because you put some urgent thing over some important thing. That is usually the case. And what is important? Well, the important thing, uh, we would frame it this way as Christians, the important thing is always love God and love people, right? What's the urgent thing in my life? Well, most often it is to please myself. And so self-control is this ability to put the, the important thing, which is love for God and love for people, over the urgent thing, which is me. That's what self-control is. And Billy Graham was full of self-control. Me? Ah, not so much. And so, how do we do this? How do we become self-controlled? Now, let's start by getting rid of the weed that will engulf 
our self-control if we let it, if we don't keep it pulled. Um, and two scriptures will help us, but I just want to go over one today. Uh, the second one is Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You can study that on your own, and it's about the cravings of the flesh and the commands of the flesh. But I want to spend some time in Proverbs twenty five twenty eight, And here's what it says. Like a city without walls is a man without self-control. Like a city without walls is a man without self-control. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah gets word back from Jerusalem, which was his hometown. He is exiled. He is thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. And he gets word about what Jerusalem is like and the state of Jerusalem. And he learns that the walls around Jerusalem have totally collapsed. There's holes in them. The walls aren't even standing in some places. And Nehemiah in chapter 1 weeps. Why? Because in those days, a city without walls was no longer a city. It had lost something. It was unprotected. It was susceptible to enemies and robbers and invaders, even wild animals. It was vulnerable. And what the Proverbs writer is saying is that the person without self-control is like that. It's like a city without walls, vulnerable to destruction. If the proverb writer was writing today, he would write it this way. I want you to picture in your mind Patrick Mahomes getting ready. He's in shotgun formation and he's getting ready to run a play. What does he have in front of him? He has five guys immediately in front of him. He has one of them that's a center and he has guards and he has tackles. And there are five guys. And these guys are going to make sure that once the ball is hiked, that none of the defenders are able to get to Patrick Mahomes. If the Proverbs writer was writing today, he would write this, like a quarterback without an offensive line is a man without self-control. Think of that same picture. Patrick Mahomes is in a shotgun formation, and there are, this time, instead of having five guys in front of him, all that's in front of him is a ball on the ground. And all of the defense is in full view. What's going to happen to Patrick Mahomes on that kind of play without an offensive line? Oh, utter sacking and destruction, right? And the point is that the situation is going to go from bad to worse because there's nothing in the way to prevent it. Like a quarterback without an offensive line is a man without self-control. Do you know what resentment without a wall, without an offensive line to climb over becomes? It becomes murder. Do you know what envy with nothing blocking for you, with nothing in its way becomes? It becomes robbery. Do you know what lust with no obstacle to climb over becomes? It becomes adultery. And what we need in our lives is a wall of protection so that these things don't grow up and end up sacking the city or sacking Patrick Mahomes. Because we're all Chiefs fans, right? And what that does, that gives you the opposite of the weed of self-control. The opposite of self-control is always being impulsive and uncontrolled because we have no walls built up against the flesh. And so, here's the solution to more self-control. Build some walls. Build some walls. 
That's it. Now, no one builds a wall just to have a great view of a wall. There's always a bigger purpose to a wall. It's to keep good things in and bad things out. It's in building walls for self-control. What we're after is keeping our focus on the good things that will fuel our self-control and keeping distractions, the things that will break our self-control out of our eyesight and away from us. And so maybe there are many walls that I could talk about, but I, I think these are important for us today. Number one, the wall of thought, the wall of thought in our text that was read today from Mark chapter 5. There's a demoniac. And Jesus gets out of a boat. He's been on a trip and uh, he, he's coming to this area and they stumble upon this demoniac who does nothing all day but run through a cemetery and through the tombs. He's uh, assumedly naked. Uh, he's He has chains on him because at one time, people were trying to bind him with chains, but he just keeps breaking through the chains, but they're still on his wrist. He's screaming everywhere he goes. He's even cutting himself so that he bleeds. And Jesus stumbles on this, and clearly there's some demonic activity going on in this man. And then later in the text, here's what we read in verse 15 of Mark chapter 5, that this crazed, demon-possessed person, all of a sudden is sitting, he's not running around, he's clothed, he's not naked, and he's in his right mind. He's not screaming, he's not cutting himself anymore. And what do we learn from that? We learn that self-control is not the result of his direct efforts. It's not the result of willpower. But his self-control is because something bigger came into his life. Jesus came into his life and sent sin over a cliff, and now he's a different person. Self-control is not something you do for yourself biblically. In fact, self-control only comes when you want something more than yourself, something bigger, something larger, some more compelling reason has to come into your life for change to really be real. And this works in your life all the time. Successes in self-control always come from bigger, more compelling thoughts and ideas that have come into your life. I can prove it to you with probably uh, this is the best picture I can give you that those of you who were parents weren't always getting up at 2.30 a.m., were you? Those of you who were parents weren't always fans of eighth grade volleyball, <laughs> but some of you are right now. Those of you who are parents, you're, you weren't always a taxi service, but you are right now. You weren't always an ATM machine where people could just come and grab cash out of you, but it seems like you are now. Now, why does this crazy self-control show up in your life? Why all the changes? It's because good parents do all these things, right? And what flips the script from a person who is not a fan of eighth grade volleyball to somebody who is a fan of eighth grade volleyball? That's easy. It's a kid, right? It's two kids. It's three kids. Depending on what type of kid, maybe in your prior life, you didn't even know what prayer was, but now your prayer life is worthy of sainthood. That's how self-control works. Something bigger comes in and does the directing. That something bigger allows us to ditch all the competing urges when we are in the trenches. And as Christians, we're in the same boat as this demon-possessed man. Jesus 
is always the bigger, more compelling thought. Jesus came into this demon-possessed man's life, and he was completely different because of it. People hardly even recognized him when they came out and saw him sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And so, when I have temptation in front of me, one of my thoughts has to be of Jesus and what he did for me. He sent sin off a cliff for this guy, and he's done the same for me. He, he paid for the sin that I'm probably contemplating right now. And if he shed his blood to cover it, then how can I give in to it? To do so would be to throw blood back in his face. And that at least has to be one of the thoughts that I build into my life. The wall of thought that he loved me with his actions, so now I can love him with mine. That bigger, more compelling wall of thought has to be there for self-control to happen. Now, this first wall, I want you to notice something. It's possible for everyone. Whether you're uh, like to run, or whether you're a 9-11 hero, or whether you're a demon-possessed guy roaming around the tombs, or whether you're Billy Graham, or whether you're a parent, or whether you're an 8th grade volleyball player, every one of us has the ability to build a wall of thought and make sure that the important thing dominates our thoughts and actions of self-control will follow when we build a wall of healthy thought. Second, There's a wall of habit that we need to establish. There's a very obscure text in Acts 23 that will lead us into what self-control really is. It'll give us a good picture. And it has incredible insight. So here's the situation. Paul is on trial in Acts 23, and he's in front of a lot of important people. And the high priest is over in one corner of the room, and Paul's on the other corner of the room, and he is being... uh, restrained by two guys and the high priest on from the other side of the room says i want you to slap that guy in the face and so one of the guys that has his clutches on paul slaps him in the face and here's what he did here's what he does he wheels around with a scathing rebuke this is what the text says maybe god will slap you you whitewashed wall he's talking back to the high priest now some people have a life verse (laughs) wouldn't this look good and super special on a mug or a t-shirt or a magnet on your refrigerator maybe god will slap you you whitewashed wall here's what somebody tells paul he says after he lashes out this way he says um do you realize that's the high priest you just threatened and suddenly paul snaps back and here's what he says he quotes exodus 22 28 He says, yes, oh, you're right. It is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler over your people. And what Paul knows is that he's gone over the line. And here's here's the key. He is immediately able to pull himself back. Now, what, what happened there? Well, the answer is that Paul ran into a wall that he had set up for himself. The wall of habit. I have a question. How many of you have ha- have Exodus twenty two twenty eight on the tip of your tongue? I don't hear anybody. No, no, me neither. See, Paul did. 
it was on his mug. It was on his T-shirt. It was probably a, a refrigerator magnet on his refrigerator. And what this verse did was that it snapped him out of his anger. That verse immediately came to his mind, and it stopped the anger from becoming something much worse. And his habit of memorizing scripture was a wall of protection for him, leading to self-control. So the question is, wow, do I have enough of a wall of habit built up in my life to pull that kind of thing off, to stop my anger or my envy or my lust in its tracks when I realize that I go over the line? Do I know scripture like that? Do I have other safeguards in place so that I'll know when I cross the line and I'll be able to get back across? And how high is that wall right now? See, Paul had a default script to fall back on, and it was a clear result of building a wall in his life, a wall of habit. So let me talk just for a few minutes about how to develop the wall of habit. There are a lot of people who have done extensive research on this kind of thing. And every week we've been trying to give you some ways to cultivate certain aspects of the Holy Spirit in your life. And this is going to be what I want you to work on this week. This is the cultivate self-control section for this week. Okay, number one, How do I develop a wall of habit? Number one, you need to preserve your willpower and leverage it. We talked about willpower as being a finite thing. It fades away. It drains as the day goes on. But the good news is willpower is also like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Um, And so the best way to use willpower is to leverage it when it's at its strongest. And so we use it when it's strong to initiate new healthy habits. And it's those habits that can then carry you through life so that you're not just relying on willpower. Um, Right now, the average person, probably you, probably me, spends, get this, four hours a day on their phone. The average person, probably you, probably me, spends 37 hours a week in front of a TV screen. Here's the thing. Nobody ever sits down at the beginning of the week and pencils those things into their calendar. I want to spend four hours a day on my phone. I want to spend 37 hours this week uh, in front of a TV. No, we don't do that. But we end up there. How? How do I change that and spend time on what I really want or really need in my life? And the answer is this, use your willpower when you have it and employ what's called a bright line strategy. And that that term, bright line strategies, comes from the courthouse. And it just means clear rules for your life. So an example of a bright line strategy would be this, I don't look at my phone after 7 p.m. And what bright line strategies do is that they actually preserve our willpower because we don't have to then struggle with the choice because it's already been made. This is why, if you do much reading about Steve Jobs, uh, you'll know at the end of his life for sure, he would go to his closet every day and there was nothing in his closet besides black shirts, 
khaki pants, and sneakers. That's what he wore. He didn't decide what he wore every day. It was the same. There were just black shirts, there were khaki pants, and there were the same sneakers. Why? Because he didn't want to use his mental capacity to have to think about what he was going to wear. And that's what a Brightline strategy does. It preserves your willpower. A Brightline strategy might be this. I don't keep ice cream in the freezer. A bright line strategy might be this. We as a family have a no phone policy at the dinner table. A bright line strategy might be this. I don't go to email first when I sit down to a computer. A bright line strategy might be this. I don't eat sugar. And what all of those things are doing is actually preserving your willpower because you don't have to think, you don't have to decide what to do because the decision has already been made and you're much more likely to succeed with change in your life. So to preserve willpower, use Brightline strategies and leverage that willpower to create new healthy habits. Here's number two, how to build a wall of habit. Study yourself and isolate your unproductive habits. A, a habit at the end of the day is simply an unconscious routine. It's something you don't even think about. It's this, um, Think about when you answer the phone, do you put the phone to your left ear or your right ear? You can answer that yourself, but regardless of what ear you put your phone to, you don't ever think about that, do you? You just do it. Uh, the same thing when you pick up a pen or a pencil, which hand do you pick it up with? Probably your dominant hand. Why do you do that? It's not because you think about it. It's because it's a habit. Uh, we might think that our actions every day in life are based on conscious decisions that we've made. I have decided, and so I will. But actually, that's not true. It's habits that are actually the guide to our actions. Duke University did a study, and they found that 40%, 40% of our daily actions each day are the result not of decisions that we make, but of habits that we've formed. If knowledge and simply deciding to change was the key to success, then we would all be billionaires and we would all have perfect abs, but we don't. And the missing ingredient for most of us is habit. John Ortberg said it this way, that habits eat willpower for breakfast. He's right. Habits guide your life. Habits make decisions for us. That's why they're so powerful. Habits will continue making decisions for us, and that's why we need to take control of them. Self-control is when your habits are healthy and holy. Self-control is not the person who is always out-muscling sin and temptation at every turn. No, self-control is the person who has built positive habits into their life. And so take control of your habits. Study yourself a little bit. Figure out what you're doing and when. And maybe if ice cream is on the menu every night at 10, and that's something that you need to change, then you need to ask yourself, huh, what habit is underneath my action? Because there is. And once that habit is tracked, then you can begin to change the way you organize your life and you can replace habits that are unproductive with habits that are. That leads us to number three, how to build a wall to habit. 
Number three, start a new habit by replacing a bad one. That's the best way to start a new habit is to replace a bad one. Every habit has three parts. It has a cue, it has a routine, and it has a reward. So you could think about it like this. Maybe uh, you're a smoker or you have been a smoker in the past. The cue for some smokers is that they find themselves outside. They just smoke when they're outside. And so when they go out on the deck, they've... That's their cue. Uh, And the routine is that when they're on the deck, they smoke, right? And then the reward is the nicotine hitting their system. Cue, routine, reward. So what we do, we replace the bad habit with a good habit. And maybe that good habit is not smoking anymore. Maybe it's running. And so the cue could still be the same. It could still be, you know what? I'm going out on my deck. But instead of pulling out a cigarette, the routine is going to change to putting on running shoes. And then I'm going to run instead of smoke. And the reward becomes endorphins that hit the system from running and from, and, and we get physical health and we get weight loss and that's the reward. And so we've used the same cue, but we've instilled a different routine and we have a new reward. Now, if you are thinking that this is kind of a far-fetched example. It's actually not. Some will remember around Community Christian Church, a guy named Sam Morris. And Sam was exactly in this boat. He was a smoker. He knew that he needed to change. And so what he did was every time he had that cue to pull out a cigarette, what he would do instead was he would put on his running shoes and he would run. He became such a good runner that he ended up running the Boston Marathon and averaging six-minute miles. Now, that's not bad for quitting smoking, right? And so it works. Maybe you want to read the Bible more. And so... um, The first thing you do when you get up is reach for your phone and uh, you get distracted by weather or Facebook or emails or three flood alerts and your intention is to read the Bible on your phone, but, you know, uh, it just never works out. So the cue is that I want to read when I get out of bed. Maybe the change then, the the routine that we're going to change is to put a, not, not our phone, but a real Bible on the nightstand. And maybe the phone stays on a desk in another room. And so now the cue is the same. I roll out of bed and I want content, but now the routine is different. And there's actually scripture in front of me and the reward is better realized. Do you know what Billy Graham's secret was? It was exactly this. You know, the reason he never missed a day of scripture reading in his life from the time he gave his life to Jesus when he was 16 is because, well... Here's the secret. He had open Bibles everywhere. Everywhere. I'm not, I'm not talking about closed Bibles. I'm not talking about Bibles on the shelf. I'm talking about open Bibles everywhere so that he could just ha- read a verse or two as he passed by. There was one on his desk. There was one in his bedroom. There was one on the kitchen table. There was one in the living room. Bibles were everywhere in almost every room. And so... Absolutely, when he was traveling, there was one with him at all times. And when it's always open and it's always with you, that, well, guess what? You never end up skipping a meal for your soul. Don't underestimate 
how small little tricks and changes in your life have the power to make a big difference. Here's number four about creating a wall of habit, and this is totally counterintuitive. Number four, change one habit at a time. Uh, people who study these things tell us to pick one goal, to smart, uh, <laughs> uh, smart small, no, start small and incremental, and then stick with it for 30 to 60 days, then, and only then, move to another goal. Now, your inclination is to is going to be to make big, sweeping, broad changes, and that's, that's actually the wrong thing to do. It actually sets us up for failure if we do that. The, the things that we need to uh, keep in mind when we're trying to pick a goal are things called keystone habits because they will produce the most results for us. Keystone habits are foundational practices that exert influence over all of the areas of your life. So an example would be having dinner together as a family. That's a keystone habit because it's not only bringing you together uh, at a certain time every day, but as a result... Your communication is going to improve, and so maybe your marriage improves, and your relationship with your kids improves, and so maybe their kid, their grades improve at school, and so having dinner together affects all of these other areas of your life. That's what a keystone habit is. So prayer is a keystone habit. Because even if it's five minutes a day, you are more productive at work and you actually eat better and your life will improve if you pray. We, why, we, why we pray is to connect with God, right? But it makes all of the other areas in our life better in so many ways. Uh, it's a keystone habit. Scripture reading is also a, a keystone habit. Exercise is a keystone habit. Church involvement is a keystone habit because uh, it's not just about the habit itself. It affects all the different areas of our lives. And the wall of habit is for this, to keep our eyes on Jesus and to prevent distraction from coming in and ruining the day. This demoniac after he was healed by Jesus, after he was sitting clothed in his right mind, he went home. He wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus says, no, I want you to go home. And he went home. And here's what he did. He developed a whole new life pattern full of new habits. And he began to tell everyone he knew about Jesus. How do we know that that's really the truth? How do we know that he really changed for the long haul? Well, we can, we can make an educated guess. See, three chapters from this account, Jesus returns to this area, the Decapolis. He returns to crowds. Not a few people, but crowds. And this is an area that didn't really know about Jesus. This is way north. It's a really Gentile area. And nobody knew about Jesus a lot. Uh, but this guy goes home and he does different things. And three chapters later, Mark, the writer of the gospel, tells us of 4,000 people coming out to listen to Jesus. How were there such massive crowds there? Well, what if it was because of this guy? Because he went home and he changed his habit. And he changed because some big compelling thing came into his life named Jesus. Finally, you need the wall of grace 
in your life. We could talk today about self-control till we're blue in the face. And one of the questions we would come, come, come up with is, if I'm loved no matter what, if I have grace, if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then why do I need to worry about controlling my actions? Why should I have self-control? And Paul actually anticipated this kind of reasoning in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And his answer to that is, by no means. See, holiness and grace are not antithetical to one another. There's a study done, and they researchers uncovered the what-the-heck effect. I don't think they used that word. I think they used some, another word, but I'll use heck. What-the-heck effect. And here's the what-the-heck effect. It's this, that when we diet... And we have a small indiscretion in our diet. It is often followed by a full-on binge. And you know this to be true, right? You're you're not going to eat sugar, but then you see that donut and you, you know, uh, you have a few bites of the donut. And then later in the day, you're like, well, I've already blown it. So what the heck, right? And then you eat cake and ice cream and, and cookies and the whole deal. And a full-on binge happens. What the heck effect? But the researchers also found the opposite. And they called this the fresh start effect. Here's what they found. That behavior improves. It actually gets better. When people perceive that they have a fresh start. In other words, if I know my diet's going to start on Monday, then on Monday, my behavior's going to change. If I'm moving to a new job, then I can establish different patterns and new and better ways of living because I'm starting a new job. Same way if I'm moving to a new town or if I'm entering into a new year, it's the fresh start effect. Behavior improves when people perceive they have a fresh start. And do you realize that from a Christian perspective, We have the ultimate blank slate, the ultimate fresh start every morning. His mercies are new to us. See, the key to self-control is to internalize the grace of God. Grace isn't opposed to self-control. It's the fuel for self-control. Grace is the wind that will fill the sails when willpower isn't enough. When we know we're forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross, it leads us to better behavior. See, we think that beating ourselves up will motivate us, but it won't. Here's what will. Seeking forgiveness from God. Oh, that's so counterintuitive. But it will motivate you into a life of self-control. The last thing we want to do when we know we've been cleansed from sin is to immediately go out and start sinning. And the wall of grace is your strongest wall to keep the important in and the destructive out and Jesus in the front and center of everything. Some of you came in today and you're discouraged. Some of you are thinking over this last week and you're just discouraged because you know you failed. And it wasn't just one time, it was lots of times. And I want you to encourage I want to encourage you with this wall of grace. Every morning is new. 
I want you to look at the demon-possessed man and how he changed. We could go to the example of Peter and how he denied Jesus, but how he changed. We could go to, to the example of Paul in Scripture, how he was actually killing Christians and trying to stamp out the church, and yet he changed. We could go to the example of the soldier at the cross who have, had just nailed hands and feet of Jesus to the cross, and then... Just minutes later, he looks up and says, surely this man was the son of God. These are people exactly like you who have been able to change. And so the encouragement today is to keep stumbling towards Jesus. Let him be the bigger reality in your life so that more self-control is the result. Father, at the end of the day, we're called to self-control. We strive for it, but we don't have it. And the reason that's good news today is because someone with perfect self-control stepped in to our shoes and was perfectly self-controlled in our place. And so all those times when our self-control was lost, when we did things that destroyed us and the people around us, Father, thank you that they are forgiven by the one who never lost control. Help us to accept that forgiveness today by grace, through faith, in baptism, for good works. Our self-control is a byproduct of being forgiven. And we thank you for that fresh start. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.